0: Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I'm your host, Randy Newman, and today I'm delighted that my conversation partner is Trevin Wax. Trevin is Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Mission Board. He's a visiting professor at Wheaton College. He was a missionary for a number of years in Romania. He writes for the Gospel Coalition and many other online and print sources. He was named by Christianity Today one of 33 millennials shaping the next generation of evangelicals, and uh, we're, we're going to talk today about uh, a, a mutual love that Trevin and I have, and that is Victor Hugo's book Les Miserables. Um, but before that, let me welcome
1: Trevin. Welcome, welcome to uh, Questions That Matter. Thank you for having me on again, Randy. It's so good to be with you.
0: Yeah, I think you're the uh, you may be the very first guest who has come on a second time. So you're, you're really you're blazing new territory. Um, I hope our listeners will go back and l- listen to the earlier recording I did about your earlier book about digging, looking into the self and rethinking yourself. Uh, that was a, a fun conversation. Before we, we dive into uh, discussing uh, Hugo's great novel, um, I note that you have a brand new book out. It's sort of your annotation of G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. That's right. Um, so uh, give us just a short—we're going to have to have you back a third time to talk about that book, um, but I um, I can't— Introduce you to our listeners without having you do at least a little bit of a promo for Orthodoxy.
1: Well, Orthodoxy is a wonderful book, a classic book, one that it gets recommended all the time, and yet it can be a very dense book. Uh, if you think about um, G.K. Chesterton, it's partly it's dense just because he has a brilliant mind and he's going all over the place and he's thinking about all sorts of things when you're when you're. Um, Uh, Reading him. Um, And and he's also referring to so many different thinkers, both contemporary and in the past, uh, so many different books, events, many of which are not familiar to today's readers, uh, particularly American readers. And so, what I wanted to do with this book, because it is a classic, I wanted to um, to ease the reading experience for the first time reader. And even for someone who may have tried to get into it and hadn't finished it, or maybe has maybe read it one time and thought, you know there were some some gold nuggets in there, but I, I didn't understand a lot of it, you know. Um, I, I thought maybe this would be the kind of book where I could do chapter introductions. In summaries, sort of to set the stage, and then to kind of come back around to say, "Hey, here's where we, here's where we're going, and here's where we've been," uh, but then also to do a lot of annotations so that you get a little bit of a. In my mind, you're getting an education just from reading the footnotes mm-hmm, uh, at mm-hmm. the bottom of of the, the pages because every time Chesterton mentions, you know, um, a particular war or a particular person or this author or that author or this style of architecture or that, you know, you you, you basically get a, a crash course in in a in a, in a you know, an education and everything, you know, just by, just by reading the notes. And I learned a lot just by going through and making sure that every person that I had a little snippet about, okay, who this person was and why Chesterton's referring to them and, and, and where that fits into the structure of the argument. So, so my goal with this book is not, I, I didn't, I don't see it as a book I wrote about orthodoxy. It's actually the book Orthodoxy with my notations, some updated spelling here and there. I do try to break up the paragraphs a little bit because that seems to be a, an english thing from 100 years ago they paragraphs could be a page long if not more and then also just to add some headings and to make to to guide the reading experience so that you feel like hey i'm going to dig into this big book it's going to demand a lot of me but at least i got a trusty guide here who can who can help me make it through and and, and glean the the gold from it
0: well, I'm I'm very excited about that because I'm one of those people who have tried to read orthodoxy and I I guess I could say yes I read it and I made it through but I bet I understood less than 20%. So, I'm really looking forward to getting yours and uh and and making it through because it is an important work. It's a very very important work and even if you're not a fan of C.S. Lewis, um, but Lewis was influenced greatly by Chesterton. So um, absolutely, um, that's, th- th- I think that's great. Congratulations on that. That's a great project. And may it be that so many more people will be able to get into that book. Um, but speaking of getting into a difficult book, Let's talk about getting into a book that's not difficult, it's just very big and uh we both love it, uh Les Misérables by Victor Hugo. I've seen you've you've done this thing quite r- regularly in your blogs of uh Treven's 7 seven key things or seven books or seven favorite things and I've noticed on on in the past couple of years a couple of new translations of Les Misérables have been some of your favorite things. So um, I really love the book, and i'm look I'm reading now the very newest translation but let's let's start with uh, how how has this book influenced your
1: life how has it influenced your your christian walk so i first i first read this book goodness it's been it's been so many years now i i i think it was um when I was in seminary. Um, I read the, you know, the Signet Classics mass market paperback. I just picked it up. It, I think I found it for a, a good deal at a at a bookstore. That was the the Norman McAfee um, translation, and and I was I was uh, overwhelmed by the 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 majesty of the storyline. Um, I the 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 scene of uh, Jean Valjean, the main character, his conversion brought me to tears um mm-hmm. and, and and it wasn't and it was the it was the understated nature of of that that conversion of that sort of response to to um an unanticipated grace um that 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 uh, that really um really hurt you know went deep into my soul into my heart and i just thought this is just a, a marvelous picture of grace. And then you have this theme running throughout of, of law versus grace. You know, uh, there's so many, there's so many theological themes running throughout. And Hugo is one of these, these guys, like, I mean, he'll just suddenly he'll like be, you know, it, it's a sprawling epic in a lot of ways um, because of so many different places that he'll go and so many different things he'll comment on and, and whatnot. And, and there's some one liners in there that are just, stunningly beautiful mm-hmm. um and mm-hmm. and and that you take away with and they're just profound that you just want to stop and pause maybe have a if you got a pencil you want to underline something and just say oh, mm-hmm. i got to come back to that you know mm-hmm. because there's there's so much beauty in the in the in in the the way that the the story is told um that yeah, it's one of those books that you have to give yourself over to it, and uh, of course not uncritically. We don't read anything uncritically, but um, you you give yourself over to it, and you and you really capture the the beauty and the the pathos and the 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 tragedy of human existence in so many ways. But then what grace and love and mercy and law, how they all come together to to tell a, a story, and to to um, I, it, it's one of the books that if you really read it carefully. And move through it. I just don't see how you couldn't be moved hmm. at some level hmm. by by the by the beauty of the story.
0: So I'm I'm gonna just just I have to at least underline something you said, but then not linger too long. But I'm I'm I'm, I'm I marvel. You picked this book up to read while you were in seminary. See, now I I'd made decisions of books I wasn't going to read <laughs> right. while I was in seminary, and those were the required textbooks. Uh, you just took on, in addition to whatever, you know, 5,000 pages of systematic theology and learning Hebrew and Greek, you also said, oh, why don't I t- pick, pick up this 1,400-page novel and read it during my spare time? But never mind, we're not going to go after that. So here's what I am going to say. My first exposure to the story of Les Miserables was seeing the musical, Um mm-hmm not not the musical movie but the the show on stage and i really did not know much about the story i had never read the book i hadn't seen uh the the, the movie versions hadn't come out yet or, or i hadn't seen them so my very first exposure was this powerful impact of the music and the drama and that stark stark contrast between jean valjean this terrible sinner who gets forgiven and transformed by the power of grace, and Inspector Javert, the the law-abiding tyrant who who has no room whatsoever for grace or mercy or forgiveness. No, you, you right. live by the law or you die by the law. And that's the theme woven through. And um, so then I read the book and felt the force even more in a very different – uh, coming from another angle. So –
1: yeah the book the book goes into so much more detail and i i'm actually i'm fortunate that i saw the musical only after i had read the book because mm-hmm. i i i feel like i got the force of the 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 story first mm-hmm. and then i and then i could sort of judge the musical saying well you know why didn't they do this or why didn't they do this? you know mm-hmm. or how did yes, they... but yes. but, I, but i but the the musical is certainly a beautiful expression of the overall mm-hmm. uh, story of the book. Um, I, for me, I know, I know you made the joke about seminary, but I'm, I look at it and think when, when you're reading a lot of theology and philosophy and all sorts of things, you, you need to cleanse the palate a little bit with some, <laughs> some great fiction, and this is certainly in that category.
0: All right, I just had this thought. I wish one of my seminary professors would have required it as a textbook. Um, because if I had been wrestling or not wrestling, you know, reading through that while also wrestling, but anyway, that let's not be seminary nerds on this, uh, because the vast majority of our listeners have not, and will not go to seminary. Um, but we're we're talking about how can, how can fiction be part of God's work in our lives to cause us to grow spiritually? So let's, let's just step back a little bit and talk about that fiction. why? Why does reading stories that are not true <laughs> shape us and uh, contribute towards our discipleship?
1: Well, I believe we are storied individuals; that mm-hmm. it's built into mm-hmm. our DNA, to our to our um, our self understanding and our understanding of the world, that we are going to to tell a story about ourselves and where we fit and. There, there's no way I we, you know I' I'm working on a uh, on, on a new book where I, I I talk about it why it's a cliche that everyone talks about being on a journey hmm. well the it's a cliche because it's true mm-hmm. for everybody mm-hmm. like you can't yes. help but see your life in some sense as a story with a right. beginning and end and uh, whatnot and so I I think I think because we are embodied, people on this earth with a you know we we came into existence we suddenly were thrust into an adventure that we were we didn't choose for ourselves you know there, it's not that's it, that's a point chesterton makes again and again is that the adventure starts from the beginning you you don't mm-hmm. pick your parents you don't pick your family you don't pick the environment that you're in you're you're suddenly here and you're thrown into the story um because of that reading stories Stories that that shape our minds, that um, give us pictures of virtue and vice, um, you know they 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 stick with us. Uh, you know, I'm I'm reading out loud to him our youngest son now. He's he's eight years old, and we, I'm reading a, a book to him, uh, a series of books from a, a friend who lives in Franklin and um, part of the the Rabbit Room group of books. And mm-hmm. j- just this just this week, I read to him um there there was a, a conversation there was a, a, a an adventure and then there was a conversation about the difference between being fearless and being courageous and what w- w- and the point was made this this kid was fearless because he didn't have any fear so he did something a little bit rash and and, and crazy but this other kid was afraid but still was brave and courageous and that he overcame his fear in order to do what needed to be done and and my son has mentioned it two nights in a row uh. the difference between fearlessness and courageous and I don't know that it, Without a story, I don't know that he would have gotten that.
0: Mm, you know? Good, good, good. You know, I, I I think I've admitted this, confessed this on another recording of another episode. Um, I I, I have not always valued fiction. I think I look down on it as a fairly new Christian, which is this is just embarrassing to me. But I, I want to say it as an encouragement to anyone who may feel similarly. Um I you know, I thought, well, this is fiction, it's not true, it's just frivolous. frivial. Um but um, uh, we have to look at the fact that there are so many stories in the scriptures, and, mm-hmm. and not, not just all true ones. There are made-up parables and made-up stories because, like you just said, we are, we are storied creatures. I like the way you said that. And um, we, we are moved and shaped by stories um we also need ideas and theology and dogmatic statements we have the book of ephesians and the book of romans also in god's word but stories um they they grab a hold of our emotions and 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 move us and and transform us so um there, there's great power in them
1: well i mean i you were Mentioning the scriptures reminded me of the power of a story sneaking past one's defenses. Mm-hmm. It, the best example we have, I think, in the Bible of that is the prophet Nathan confronting David. Mm-hmm. He 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 could have come to David and said, "Why have you committed this terrible sin with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered?" But you know, uh, he doesn't he doesn't do that. He he gets David's emotions engaged and involved with the story that he tells. And then when he says, thou art the man, mm. it lands completely differently than if mm-hmm. he had simply started out that way. Yeah. Um, which which goes to show, I think, the, the both the power and that there is a danger to stories as well. Bad stories can warp us in many mm. ways, just mm. as good stories mm-hmm. can, yes. can form us well because they sneak past our defenses. And mm. so, I, you know, they're, they're powerful.
0: Mm. Yes. One of the questions that matter that we hope to pursue throughout all of these different podcasts is do you want to experience the power of a transformed life? That's the focus of our CS Lewis Institute Fellows Program, a year-long Fellows Program, and we're at this time accepting applications for the next round of uh, Fellows Programs, please visit our website cslewisinstitute.org and then go slash fellows underscore program, or just go searching on our website for the fellows program, and uh, prayerfully consider applying. Now, I just have to uh, I have to share one of my favorite bits <clears throat> from C.S. Lewis. And and I want I want our listeners to know I'm I'm not required to quote C.S. Lewis every time I do one of these recordings but I just can't help myself but he has this uh, short essay called On Stories and he talks about the importance of rereading stories reading them more than once and as only he could say it he says an unliterary man may be defined as one who reads books only once. There's hope for a man who has said, who has never read Mallory or Boswell or Tristram Chandy or Shakespeare sonnets. But what can you do with the man who says he has read them, meaning he's read them only once and thinks that settles the matter? <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, we do not enjoy a story fully at the first reading, not till the curiosity, the sheer narrative lust has been given its sop and laid asleep. Are we at leisure? To savor the real beauties. Isn't that something? Um, we we if if we're just so curious and, and not know how it's gonna go, well, we well we understand it and we you know we follow it. But the second time we know what's gonna happen and we can even slow the reading down. We can deliberately slow it down because I'm not rushing to get past what's gonna happen to him. Is he gonna jump or isn't he gonna jump? It's Oh, look at the way he worded that, or look at the way she described that scene. Hmm. And you can just you can slow down. You can highlight. I'm I'm actually rereading Les Miserables, and I'm highlighting. But I wouldn't have done that the first time because it was just you know I had to I had to follow where it was going. So,
1: well, yeah, it, it to me, I I love what Lewis says there, and I actually I I don't recall coming across that, but I I just finished a third reading. Of the Brothers Karamazov, the Dostoevsky book, which is one of my favorite novels of all time as well, and I think, I, I honestly though this is, this is what I would say of uh, a uh, Randy something that Lewis doesn't say, but I think he would agree with, um, when you read fiction, and I, you know, I, I found this to be true when I read the Screw Tape Letters. Um, I've I've read that three times in three different decades of my life and I feel like I was a different person each mm-hmm. time I read the mm-hmm. book. Well, you because are, you are, yes. Y- you 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 grow, you change, and you come back to a book that you may have read before and you read it at a different phase of your life, and you it hits you differently. It's it 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 has a different effect on you. But I, I certainly agree. There's something to be said for finding a book that you that you cherish and not and not reading it out of a obligation or because it's laborious, but just because that's once you find a book that you really love, returning to it and enjoying it and savoring it is one of the one of the best parts about reading.
0: Mm. Yes. I I I I don't know. I I want to encourage our listeners, you know, it's really okay to read some short novels too. I mean, Trevin apparently doesn't want to do anything that's less than 800 pages. Brothers Karamazov is what 900. So, um, but it it's good to read short novels too. Um uh, <laughs>
1: But for sure. Uh, <laughs> the Great Gatsby is short. Uh Hard Times by Charles Dickens is short. There's hmm. there's quite a few good, good short novels out there.
0: All right. Now you you've mentioned that you've read it in three different translations. And I think about this newest one, this most recent one, you said it has the some of the most resonance with the with the scriptures. Um tell us a little bit more about these different translations. Why they make a difference, and what what you meant about that—the resonance with the scriptures.
1: Sure. Well, the the first time I read was sort of that older classic edition, which was fantastic. I mean, it's a it's a beautifully written book, um, uh, and and uh, any translator worth their salt it can't help but do well with the material <laughs> to some extent because it's mm-hmm. just beautiful. I did the second time I read the book was by Julie Rose. It was the translation that Julie Rose did, and I. I enjoyed that one a lot more and I may have enjoyed it more Randy because it was my second time through. Mm-hmm. And so I understood more and I knew where it was going, but I also just, I found the, the prose to be, to be very, um, uh, sparkling. I mean, it's just, it, it really has a, um, th- there was a, 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 sense of contemporariness to it that, that gave it a lot of, of beauty and depth, but this most recent translation by Christine Doniger uh it's the ping the penguin classics deluxe edition which that's the one you were talking about as well Mm -hmm. uh i i got to the very end of it and i realized why i was so enjoying this one and at the end of it i realized why i would choose this one out of the three um it's there's a scene towards the end when suddenly they realize that um it basically, Marius and Cassette. And I don't want to go into the. Obviously, we don't want to give away too much here. Uh, realizes that this main character has really been a, a saintly figure, um, has been someone who is um, has has shown a life of forgiveness and self sacrifice, and and this is the way that he uh, that Marius is just. It says his heart was swelling, burst out. You know, he says, "Cassette, do you hear?" He even goes that far. He asks my forgiveness. And do you know what he has done for me Cassette? He has saved my life. He has done more. He has given you to me. And after having saved me and after having given you Cassette to me, what did he do with himself? He sacrificed himself. Behold the man. <laughs> that's what that's what that's what the new translation says. And when I get to that behold the man, mm-hmm. the biblical resonance there is this is the jesus figure <laughs> of the novel right mm. well then then uh, but i if you go to the julie rose translation there it, it it says you know cassette he saved my life he did more than that he gave me you and after saving me and after giving me you cassette what did he do with himself he sacrificed himself that's the kind of man he is mm. and uh, which again beautifully written still beautiful but the mm-hmm. the behold the man mm. resonance mm. that you that you get from, from from the gospel of john when pilate says, you know, behold the man, and you have Jesus in the, in the, in the ultimate humiliation about to be, about to sacrifice himself. Um, it's, it, the, the, for a translator to understand that in Hugo's mind, there are these biblical allusions and resonances to me makes for a better translation because it allows those of us in English who are reading to, to, and who also understand some of that biblical
0: mm-hmm. terminology
1: to 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 glean more from the the text and the translation, so that's just an example of why the translation really really does matter.
0: Mm. Now, I don't know if you know the answer to this question. I certainly don't. Um, do you know anything about this tra- this newest translator? Does she have Christian convictions? Is that part of the driving force? and or what about Victor Hugo? i I mean, I've done some reading about him. He doesn't necessarily strike me as a Godly Christian man, uh, certainly a lot of um, um, uh, extramarital affairs that seem to dominate his life. and yet he's writing this this stunningly, I would say rather parallel Christian story. Do, do you have any insight for us on either yeah, Hugo I, uh, or this woman translator?
1: I, I I don't know much about the translator. It says that you know she she does she's a um, freelance translator and editor. Translated numerous books from French and Italian. Um, Hugo is similar to Dostoevsky. You can look at the same the same life and and you're you're looking at a book uh, like Brothers Karamazov where there's this there's a profound Christian sensibility at the bottom of mm-hmm. both Les Miserables and Brothers Karamazov. They're two of my very all time favorite novels. Um, and yet, they're, the lives of the the, the authors are, are are pretty much a mess from a Christian perspective, as mm-hmm. far as to mm-hmm. exactly where their convictions are or their actions lining up with their convictions. Um, I I think what we're benefiting from in both of these books are uh, are works from two individuals whose sensibilities and moral outlook is profoundly shaped. By Christendom in the 1800s, mm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, whether whether or not in their own lives and personal faith and whatnot were completely orthodox or were living up, a, 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 you know, to to uh, to to Christian orthodoxy, and even there there would be differences based on, uh, you know, what you consider orthodox. You know, of course, Dostoevsky was was Russian Orthodox. Uh, you've, I, I think, what you're you're you find it with those authors though is they come from a milieu where. There's a profound Christian sensibility, and they and there's also a recognition that some of what is beautiful in that that Christian sensibility is in danger of being lost. I get the impression with both of those books that the authors are are um, are, are concerned of that that the way society is going or what might happen with society that there are there are elements of that that Christendom that. Ought to be discarded, perhaps, and then there are elements that need to be lifted up and they need mm. to be preserved. Yeah. and And I think that's what that's one of the reasons why the books uh, continue to speak across the, the 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 centuries to that level is because they're they're dealing with um, that the, they're dealing with human realities, with the human soul, with enduring traits of humanity, but from a perspective that um, corresponds enough with Christianity. To where the resonances of the human heart the inconsolable longings of the human heart that cs lewis would talks about and surprised by joy come come out in their in their writing and in their fiction
0: on saturday april 2nd at 7 p.m we're going to be having our annual fundraiser event with our keynote speaker steve king pastor steve king after a, a lifetime in ministry, he's now Pastor Emeritus, but with more than four decades of ministry experience, he's gonna be speaking on more than we can imagine. We hope you can make it, we hope you can join us. Visit our website, cslewisinstitute.org. Look for the information about our annual fundraiser and uh, please join us. Um, well, I wanna share one of my favorite parts of the book. And I think what, what I wanted to say not only does this make a very good point, but it, it takes a while to say it, and that's something that fiction does. Um, if you were just delivering a, a factual treatise, you might just say one sentence or two sentences like, you know, the your surroundings make a difference in your life. There. But listen to the way uh, Hugo writes this with this great translation. This is after Jean Valjean has Uh, escaped all sorts of difficulties, and now he finds himself in this very, very beautiful, quiet, religious convent. And uh, the book says, he was slowly imbued with everything that surrounded him, this peaceful garden, these fragrant flowers, these children uttering joyful cries, these women of grave simplicity, this silent cloister, And little by little, his soul became a creation of silence like this cloister, a perfume like these flowers, of peace like this garden, of simplicity like these women, of joy like these children. And then he reflected how it was two houses of God that had in turn taken him in at two critical moments in his life. The first when all doors were closed to him and human society rejected him. The second, when human society started pounding him again and the prison hulks opened up before him once more. And that, but for the first, he would have fallen back into crime. And but for the second, back into torment.
1: Hmm.
0: Isn't that just beautiful? And again, to to feel the, the weight of that, it takes that long. He, he takes a while to, to unpack an emotion or an event. And that's what fiction does. And, and you don't necessarily want to rush it. You you don't want to, okay, yeah, I got the point. No, no, you want to feel, uh, just all of, all of the different senses being, uh, awakened in it.
1: Absolutely. That's, that's a, that's a, I think that's a beautiful example of the power of, of fiction in helping us linger. You know, you don't, you don't rush through books like this. You you want to linger over the, 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 the text and really let the full force of the, the beauty and the, it's like, it's like taking in a painting. You don't want to go from what, <laughs> if you're in an art museum and I mean a, I mean an art museum with genuine art, not some of the, <laughs> Not some of what passes for art today, but but like with you, you don't want to just rush from painting to painting. You you want to sit and behold something. I think a good novel, and even the long ones, Randy, even the long ones, a good novel presses us to to stop and really linger uh, over over something beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, in a world that that does feel like we're in a rush all the time, or that we need to take in as much information as possible. Um, good fiction, good literature, beautiful music, uh, stunning art, uh, demands that we slow down, uh, focus on only one thing, (laughs) maybe it's only a word or a sentence or a paragraph or a part of just one painting, and allow that to make us deeper, richer, more fully human um, and I, I think that's what this book does for both of us. And for so many, many people, um, we could talk for hours, but I, I need to kind of wrap this up. Are there any more, any more thoughts that you wanted to share about your experience and your spiritual growth and development as a result of reading Les Miserables?
1: Well, I, I think there's something I, I immediately think of a couple of things where I'm move to tears, whether it be the movie version or the musical or in, in the book, the, the conversion scene, but also the, um, the uh, you know, not wanting to give away a lot of the book, but the, the, the way the book ends with the sort of the, the, the main character, you know, at the end of his life, uh, there's we, we are formed by our view of the future. And by our view of our destiny, mm, good, and what good. where it is that we're going, and there's something so powerful and profound about imagining your own your own self at the end of your own life, mm. and 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 striving toward and and leaning forward into those to that 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 sort of that beautiful transition uh, when you know you're going to be moving from this life to be with the Lord, and, and the kind of person you want to be at the end of that life. Um, when I think about Les Mis, and I think about the, the the sprawling story that it tells, with all of the sin and the evil and the heartache and the beauty and the wickedness and the and the injustice and the forgiveness and mercy and all of these great human themes that are that that are captured in this book, I'm left with that that end result though of the individual who has been slowly but steadily formed and shaped uh, in the image of Christ through the choices that have been made um, and through the grace that's been shown to him. And then the choices that he's made throughout his life uh, to where you see a great soul at the end of life. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's hard to walk away with that, Randy, and not want to, 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 at least at some level of, uh, see that as the end, see that as the end of your earthly life and the beginning of the the life thereafter. And, and so for me, that's been very, very formative as I've thought about, you know, how, what will the end of my life look like? Only the Lord knows, but you know, what, what could it look like if after, you know, a lifetime of hopefully growth and sanctification and virtue and what that it it's, it's that kind of legacy that's left.
0: Mm, Okay. Well said. Yeah, it's it's um, uh, okay. There's there's delusions of grandeur in this for sure, but but it's it's worth it's worth playing out. Okay, if somebody was going to write a novel of my life, and they're coming to the end and they're writing this last bit, what what would I want them to say on that last page? Uh, mm. What would my life? What what do I want my life to be like? And if someone were writing about it, what would they say? And I do have to quickly say, uh, Jean Valjean is not sinless in this book. No, no. In fact, there are a couple of places where it's excruciatingly painful. Um, But then, so, so then it becomes all the more beautiful and powerful that he's a man who's been redeemed. He's been forgiven. He has... He's been changed by the power of God's grace, not by his own inner fortitude and great character. Yes, there certainly is that, but it's a character that shines because of terrible failures and even sin, and look at God's redemptive power.
1: Absolutely. And I I think that's actually what gives hope to the reader, is that they're not— you're not looking at at someone who is saintly all throughout the book. In fact, you could even say, even later on in the life, that you know there's some unwise choices and decisions that are made mm-hmm. throughout the throughout the book as well. Maybe not sinful choices, but certainly not there's there's the uh, the, the desire for control and for anonymity, and there's and it leads to to um, uh, to there being challenges relationally with other people. So. So yeah, but I think, I think actually that adds to the portrait of the man. I think it's why he's so compelling is that you, he, he seems like someone real.
0: Very, uh, very and, real. And,
1: and that's the beauty of, of Les Mis uh, uh, overall and in any great literature is that you could, you could look at these, that the, uh, there, there are people in, in, in these great books um, and you can, you could look at them and it's, I mean, it's as if they, they could walk into the room, and you could actually meet them, and you wouldn't be surprised to find that that was a real person being written about. Yes. And and, and that's, what, that's what's so beautiful about great literature.
0: Oh, well done. Well done. And thank you for pointing us in that direction. Well, um, I'm afraid we could go on, but I'm going to draw this to a close. Um, C.S. Lewis said, you can't get a cup of tea large enough or a book long enough to suit me. <laughs> and I would say that this is a book still uh, in that long book category, but so very powerful, and uh, I'm so thankful for it. I I had originally hoped to have finished my rereading of it before this conversation, but I'm I'm just over 52.3 percent. That's what happens when you have uh, a, an ebook. Um, but I, I'm I, I'm not rushing. I don't want to rush through it. So. Uh, Trevin, thanks so much for being a guest on Questions That Matter. I want to say to our listeners, please check out some of the items we put in the show notes, especially this this new annotated uh, uh, edition about Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Trevin, we got to have you back to talk about that book, and maybe the brothers Karamazov. We can just put those two together in one recording; it'll be easy. Um, that would be great. <laughs> so anytime. Uh, Uh, Again, to our listeners, please check out our website, cslewisinstitute.org, and all of our many resources. Our desire is to promote heart and mind discipleship so that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind.